we have been going through the book of Revelation, and uh, I, we've kind of been going fairly steadily through it, and I'm kind of, I'm kind of speeding to the end because we just have um, a few more weeks together. Um, I'm going to preach tonight and three more times. Um, in a couple weeks, we're going to have our seniors share, and uh, I would love for y'all to come to that and hear what they have to tell y'all and to encourage you with. Um, but uh, I want to spend the last couple weeks that we have um, together looking at what is, what does the Christian hope look like? What does the Bible suggest that it is? And um, to set that up, I want to tell you about when I first, when I first got to Austin, I moved here with my family from Houston so that I could finish seminary. And um, I didn't know, I knew a little bit about Austin, um, but was learning a lot about the city. And uh, some of y'all know this, but there's a lot of weird things about me, but one of the weird things is I'm really into this very random sport called disc golf, and I have disc golf buddies who, like, come to Austin to play disc golf, and they call me up when they're here for tournaments and stuff, and uh, it was one of those days where they were here, and I was sitting in my class, and my buddy texted me and said, hey, there's this really great restaurant that we're going to go to. Uh, you should meet up, meet up with us uh, after your class. So, um, I'm sitting in my class, and this is like one of those seminary classes that like you're supposed to be, your soul is supposed to be fed, but it's kind of getting like sucked away because you're in there from like 9 in the morning till 6 p.m. because the professor's in from out of town, and he's just talking and talking and talking, and it's all great, but you're just like, Ugh! and so as I'm sitting there, I just start like boredom eating, you know, because uh, Chrissy has packed me a sack, he always would pack me a sack lunch when I go to seminary to, off to school, and so like, it's like 10 o'clock in the morning, I'm like, what's in the sack today, you know, the PBJ, so I'll, I'll eat that at 10 o'clock, sure, why not, so I eat my peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and then finish that, and still kind of boredom eating, and so now I'm eating like my salt and vinegar chips, which I love, and then I'm eating like the fruit gummies, which is like a plus of having four kids, is like you actually have fruit gummies in your house again, which is amazing. And so I consume all of those, and now I've like finally moved on to the, the carrots that she put in there because she knew I would boredom eat and eventually get to the carrots. And so I'm eating the carrots, and I just eat everything. And finally, our professor lets us out, and it's, um, it's like right before 11. And my friend had been really clear for some reason that I needed to get to meet him by 11 o'clock for this place they were going. I was like, okay, whatever. And so I put the place in my phone, I drive over there, and I pull up to Franklin Barbecue, and I see this line, like, out the door, around the corner, over the street. You know, y'all, if you've been there, you know what it's like. And I'm like, what is this place that I have just driven to? And my friends had gotten there at, like, 7 in the morning. And they're, like, the fourth person in line. So I just kind of like, hey, what's up? Like, go, like, stand next to them. And the door opens, and we go in, and the smell just hits you in the face. And I'm like, oh, I understand the line now. Okay, here we go. And they proceed to order an ungodly amount of barbecue. And, you know, the guy's just, like, carving off the, the barbecue. And he hands me this tiny little end. It's called burnt ends. Is that what it's called? He gives me a burnt end. He's like, just eat that. And I put it in my mouth. And it is ju- it's an explosion in your mouth. It's of flavor and beauty and beef flesh. And it's amazing. And I proceed to try to eat as much of this food that I can, but I've got this like layer of fruit gummies, carrots, PBJ, and 
chips, like Lay's chips in my stomach, and I, I just keep eating and eating and eating until I, I don't even have a food baby. I have like a food toddler in my stomach, and I was just miserable. The whole rest of the, I felt awful. I felt terrible, and so the next time I went to Franklin's, I did it right, you know, I, because they came back later, a couple of months later, and they're like, let's go again, and that time I was like fasting, you know, I, like, I'm not touching anything this morning. I'm not gonna, maybe I'm not even going to eat a big dinner the night before because my stomach needs to be as empty as possible so that I can cram as much barbecue in there as I can. And here's the thing. Jesus gives, he gives the story of Revelation to these people who are, are suffering and they're in the midst of persecution And they're being tempted, we talked about this last week, they're being tempted with all of these false idols that ultimately are going to leave them unsatisfied and aren't going to give them any hope in the midst of their persecution. And what Revelation is supposed to do is capture our imaginations that there's actually a meal coming that's so much better that just like lay off the fruit gummies and carrots. Because just wait. And see what's coming. And that's what we see in this passage tonight. Um, Antoine, let me see if I can say his name right. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who's the author of The Little Prince, he says, he puts it this way. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. And in Revelation, what God is doing is he's not, this isn't just, he doesn't just come and say, you need to be faithful, and you need to start doing better, and you need to believe. But he peels back the curtain to show them what awaits them, and what he's doing is he's teaching them to long for the glory of heaven. To long for the immensity and the glory of heaven. So let's read this this text together. This is kind of the first extended portrayal of what we get to see what heaven is going to be like. What's eternity going to be like? Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then um, in Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This is God's word to us. And I want you to see three things in it. First, I want you to see the bride. Secondly, the groom and his feast. 
And third, why this matters to you now. Um, so John's writing in the, in the book of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation, it's, he's, he's almost like a symphony composer. And the reason I say that is because there's kind of these themes that he's always hitting on, and he's, he's doing these different variations of them, and as the piece moves towards its final goal, you see them all coming together. And that happens, I think, in this passage, because he begins talking about this bride. And I think if you even look back, if you're, if you're asking, like, okay, well, what is this bride like? What's the bride of Christ like? I think we get a beautiful picture of it in John 4. And I think it's an intentional picture that, that, that he gives us. So in John 4, some of you will be familiar with the story. There's this Samaritan woman. And she is at a well. And it's the middle of the day and it's hot outside. And she's all alone. And the reason that she's going to a well when it's the middle of the day and hot outside and not in the morning when everyone else in her village would be going she goes to this well because no one wants to be with her. Because this woman who's at this place called Jacob's Well in this tiny village called Sychar, she goes, she goes there because she has all these messed up relationships in her life. She's been divorced five times. And the man that she's with now, Jesus tells her, is not her, is not her husband. And she is kind of this pariah in her little world. And the way that John writes the story, it's so interesting because what I think he's doing is he's telling us, this is what the bride looks like. Let me tell you why I think that. So we've talked a couple times now about how the number seven is always important in John's writing, that he's kind of playing with that number. Think about even when I said about this, woman, this Samaritan woman. She's had five husbands, all broken relationships. And then Jesus tells her, he comes up to her and asks her a drink of, for a drink of water. They start having this conversation. And then Jesus like, knows all of her stuff. And he tells her, yeah, you've got five husbands, and the one that you're with now is not your husband. That's six men in her life. And it begs the question, is there a seventh man? Seven being the number of perfection and wholeness and completion. And up walks Jesus. Up he walks, and he does something that is just steeped in Old Testament love stories. He meets a woman at a well and he asks her for a drink of water. It's how Isaac meets his bride. It's how Moses meets his bride. It's how Jacob meets his bride. And by the way, the place where the Samaritan woman is, is literally called Jacob's well. And so Jesus walks up to her and he says this line that like all, that all these old heroes of the Old Testament, these patriarchs of the Old Testament, that they say to their bride. Listen to how it's depicted when Jacob meets his, his future wife, Rachel, in Genesis 29. Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, the, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of his mother's brother. Yes, it's his mother's brother. Albamians love this story. All right, anyway. Um, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. 
Jacob loved Rachel and he said to her father, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. All right, girls, if any boy walks up to you and kisses you and begins weeping loudly, he got that move from, from Jacob. But you should probably also run away. That's a bizarre <laughs> way to, to meet your future bride. But here's the thing. Jacob meets his beautiful wife, Rachel, at a well, and he's willing to work for years to have her hand in marriage. And now, years later, there's a Samaritan woman, and she's sitting by the well, but the well is the place, the well in her village is the place where she remembers all the time that she's a reject, that nobody wants to be with her. It's the place of her utmost shame, and up Jesus walks to her, in the very place where she would not want anyone to see her. And he comes to her, and he begins to go to work in her life. And what we're getting here is how does God deal with his church, which is his bride? The Samaritan woman is a picture of Christ's ultimate bride, his church. The ch- and, and here's the thing. The church isn't beautiful like Rachel was. You know, Jacob sees Rachel like, she's beautiful, I'll work for however long, however long you need me to, I'll do it, I'll take care of it. Jesus pursues people who are sinners, who run away from him. And not only that, he will meet you in the place of your greatest shame. And he'll make you his bride. That's, that's how Jesus deals with his bride. And I want you to know what this means for you. It means you don't have to be beautiful and you don't have to have your life all put together and looking beautiful for Jesus to come to you. He meets you in your sin and your shame and he goes to work. Listen to how, listen to how Paul describes Christ's marital love for his people in Ephesians 5. Husband love your, husbands, love your wives. And then he compares it to Jesus in the church. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what the groom is like. He goes to work and he cleans up his bride. Um, some of you have heard me tell this story. Uh, I'm going to tell it again because it's one of my favorites. Uh, and I know now a lot of you haven't. Um, back in 2008, there, uh, you know, economic downtrends happening and um, there's a lot of like kind of sad stories of people losing their jobs and there's a guy like that named Lionel Radia who was down on his luck, he's in his mid-40s, he's lost his job, he's, um, I think he's divorced, he's kind of, his life has kind of like been falling apart, but one good thing is happening in Lionel's life, and it's that his favorite baseball team, the Philadelphia Phillies, are winning the World Series. They're up three games to one, and then, break of all breaks, Lionel gets a ticket to game five where they might actually clinch the World Series. And Philadelphia hadn't won a championship in their city for decades. So Lionel gets the ticket, he goes to the game, he's so excited, and the game gets rained out. Of course, it's Lionel's luck. But he gets a rain, like a, a, a rain check, yeah, a rain check, 
He goes back the next day, and Lionel has this little thought that pops into his mind. What if I, like, tried to sit closer and not in the nosebleeds where these seats are terrible? So Lionel kind of deviously decides he's just going to pretend like he belongs, and he walks straight down past, like, the grumpy, you know, man who's watching people and checking their tickets. He just walks past him like he belongs there. He gets there. He sits on the second row right behind home plate, and he doesn't move. And he pulls out his phone, and he texts his friend John, who's also at the game, who has pretty good seats, third row, or uh, uh, third baseline, like 20 rows back. He texts his friend John, second row behind home plate. And John looks over, and Lionel's just like, like waving to him. The game goes on, and y'all, the Philadelphia Phillies are win- they're, they're going to win the World Series. It's the last inning. The crowd is all standing on their feet. The closer's out. They, they're way ahead. And now Lionel notices something. I mean, he has not budged from his seat. He's just taking it all in. He notices these two massive men walking down towards the field, down the aisle that he's sitting next to. And as the final out is made, Lionel just kind of stands up and gets behind those guys. And what he doesn't see is that in between them is Bud Selig, the commissioner of baseball, holding the World Series trophy. And when the final out is made, the two bodyguards, Bud Selig, the World Series trophy, and Lionel walk onto the field. And everyone is going crazy. Like the dog pile is on the pitcher's mound. His friend, his, his, all of his favorite players that he like knows everything about are there. And Lionel is right in the middle of this celebration. But here's the thing. Lionel is like, he's a super fan. He knows everything about these guys. And he sees Shane Victorino's wife, the center fielder, going around, she's from Hawaii, and she's going around and she's putting Hawaiian lays on everyone. And so Lionel's like, hey, Miss Victorino! And she comes and she puts a Hawaiian lay around Lionel's neck. Now that, now that he has this Hawaiian lay around his neck, he, looks, he kind of looks a little bit more like he belongs there. And the guy who's walking around handing out the World Series champion t-shirt and the World Series champion hat that hasn't been bent yet, and it's got like the tag dangling on it, he gives that to Lionel, and so Lionel puts that on. He puts the hat on. He's got the Hawaiian lei on, and he pulls out his phone, and he texts his friend John, pitcher's mound. And John looks at the pitcher's mound, and Lionel's like, (laughs) it gets better. Because then Jimmy Rollins, who's just won the MVP of the World Series, says, let's go celebrate. And Lionel's like, I'm with you guys. And he looks like he looks like the trainers or like the field crew, all those other guys, because he's got he's got the lay on, he's got the hat on, he's got the shirt on. I kid you not, this I'm taking this from a Rick Riley article. Um, you can look it up afterwards. There is a screenshot of what John saw when he was at a sports bar a few minutes later. He looks up and Lionel is pouring champagne on TV. He's pouring champagne on Ryan Howard's head while he's getting interviewed the first baseman. And I was just like, <laughs> best, best fan sports day ever, right? I mean, like he got, he got to be with all of his favorite players on their best day where they're enjoying and celebrating. And I want you to think about this. The reason he got in is because he was dressed like a champion. He was dressed to fit the part. And what we read in Ephesians Five is that Jesus 
has cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Look at verse 8 of Revelation 9. It was granted to the church, she was granted to clothe herself with fine linens of righteousness because she's given the righteousness of Christ by faith. And this is the beautiful part. Like, Lionel, Lionel gets in because he's, like, super sneaky. He gets into the, the best party ever. The picture that we get in Revelation 19 is that God's church doesn't sneak in, but they're treated like the champion. They're the bride. They're the one who is celebrated over and delighted in and ushered into really boring eternity. No. No. They're ushered into a feast. It's a feast, you guys. Like, this blows my mind. That it's, what God wants you to see is that heaven is not going to be something that's just boring that you're going to be like looking at your watch and you're like, dang, I guess we got eternity here. Man, strap in. And once you even think about this, some, I, real talk for a sec, especially I think maybe with the guys, maybe you've had a hard time thinking about like, I'm part of the bride of Christ. Maybe that feels weird to you. I, mean, I, I remember feeling weird about that, like imagining, okay, so I'm going to, he's going to dress me and I'm going to be his bride. And here's the thing. Um, C.S. Lewis kind of raises the same question about that when, he, when he's reflecting on how it seems like Scripture says that there won't be sex in heaven. And I want you to hear what he says about that. This is so good. He says, The letter and spirit of Scripture and of all Christianity forbid us suppose that life in the new creation will be a sexual life. Yet, listen to this, yet I think our present outlook might be like that of a small boy who on being told that the sexual act was the highest bodily pleasure should immediately ask, the boy should immediately ask then, whether you ate chocolates at the same time. On receiving the answer no, he might regard Absence of chocolate as the chief characteristic of sexuality. In vain you would tell him that the reason, the reason why, why lovers have no time in their carnal raptures for chocolate is that they have something better to think of. Yet the boy knows chocolate. He does not know the positive thing which excludes it. We are in the same position. We know the sexual life. We do not know, excepting glimpses, the other thing which in heaven will leave no room for it. See, what Lewis is getting at is that, yes, sex, it is a beautiful and wonderful thing, but it's only a foretaste. It's only a foretaste of a much greater pleasure of being joined in union and communion with God and with one another. 
for eternity. And similarly, like the, the best parts of marriage, they're a foretaste. They're, they're a foretaste and point to, it's, it's why marriage isn't the only illustration that, that is used between Christ and his church. It also says that he's the head and we're his body. Like we're, we're, that, we're that united with him. Or that he's our elder brother. He's our friend. That all of these illustrations are pointing to this is how good it's going to be. That all the best things about every little thing that we enjoy in this life relationally, all the best things that we enjoy about this life in our parties are pointing to something better. I'm telling you, there is a reason that the first miracle that Jesus does in John, that John records, again, John's, he's a symphony writer. He's weaving all these things together. The first miracle that Jesus does, he could have done anything. He's been waiting for 30 years to do something cool. He goes to a podunk town where they're having a wedding, a wedding feast. And they run out of wine. And he takes water, and he makes the best wine anyone's ever tasted. And he doesn't make a little bit of it. It's not boxed wine like you guys drink. It's, okay, you don't, you don't all, some of you just gave me a really offended look. I'm sorry. Maybe you don't drink boxed wine. That's what I did in college. But anyway, um, it's not, it's not cheap wine. The master of the feast tastes it. He's like, where did you get this? This is the, I'm a connoisseur of wine. This is the best ever. And it's, it's a lot of wine. It's hundreds of gallons of wine that he makes. He's the Lord of the feast. He's the groom who delights in his bride and welcomes her in to the party to end all parties, literally. Heaven is going to be a feast. And all the best meals that you've tasted, all the the most fun parties that you've had with your best friends where you laughed and you danced and there was that great music or that great band, all of those things are pointing to, you know what, you are the thing that you just feel and can almost reach out and touch in those moments that are so good, they're tastes of what's to come. Heaven is not boring. It is a feast that lasts for eternity. And I want you to just let your imagination run wild with that for a second. I was having lunch with some guys today, and they started talking about this, this movie called... Um, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Have you all seen this? It's about this dude named, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, Jiro Ono. And he is considered the world's best sushi chef. His little restaurant, the guys were telling me, is like in a subway station. And it only seats 10 people. And people from all over the world wait for months and months on a list to be able to go and sit down and have this guy feed them sushi. Because he's been doing it for like 60 years, and he knows so much about it. He knows all these different things that just make, when you put that bite in your mouth, it's unbelievable. I want you to imagine this. What if that guy hasn't been learning how to make sushi really good for 60 years? What if he's been doing it for 60,000 years in eternity? 60,000 years of honing his craft. And we saw this earlier. Revelation depicts all the nations are there, and they've all got the best parts of their culture their best music, their best foods, Italian wine, 
French cuisine. I don't know what the British are going to bring, but it'll be great. <laughs> like, all the best. And you've got eternity to figure out how to make it better. That is what awaits. And I want you to know why this is important now. I'm, I'm taking this illustration from my old campus minister, Brian Haybig. Um, he, he had read, a, he told me about a book called Quiet. Uh, it's about um, life as an introvert in this world. It's a, I've heard it's a great book. I haven't read it. Um, I probably should. But uh, the book is by Susan Cain. She interviews a lot of different people in this one particular man that she interviews is named David Weiss. And he kind of talks about his life growing up as a kid. He's like, you know, I was like, grew up in Detroit, and I was like, I was the stereotypical, when you imagine what a nerdy middle school kid looks like, he's like, I was that kid. And in, in my school, if you weren't wealthy or a jock, you were, you were just a target. And he's like, I wasn't wealthy or a jock. I was just a target. And he was, a, he was very artistic and loved music, and that kind of made him an even bigger target. And he's like, you know, I'd, he's like, I, just des- I used to despise when people would be like, school is the best time of your life, because he's like, I hated school. And now his life is like amazing. He's this composer in New York. He's doing all this interesting stuff. And um, like, He's like, there's these days that I have where like, I'll be sitting down interviewing like Alicia Keys and talking about music. And there's this thing inside of me that just wants to like send back a telepathic message to my nine-year-old self and just like say, you know what? It's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Like your life turns out great. You're going to be great. Now, I don't know if that actually works and I haven't gotten any message. I would have liked to have gotten a message from my future self. But I want you to look again at this passage in Revelation 22. It's a little thing that I added at the end. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Did you catch that? You see that? It's not just that the Spirit says, come. The Bride. If you are in Christ, this is your future self. If you are in Christ, this is your future loved ones even who have passed now. And they're looking at you and they're telling you, it's going to be okay. Come. And when you come, do you know what you'll do? When you come, you'll come, and whoever is thirsty, let the one he desires take the water of life without price. This is the very thing that Jesus offers to the Samaritan woman at the well. He tells her, tells her that he has water that if anyone drinks it, they'll never go thirsty. They'll be satisfied forever with my feast. And that it's water that will well up to eternal life. So come. It's offered out to you freely. It says the water is free. Just come. Come to him, not like you're cleaned up, as you are, and let him clean you, because he's good. He's a good groom. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you 
for the truth of the gospel and the hope of heaven. And I pray, Father, that uh, in the midst of school and suffering and just hardship, that you would once again remind us of the wonderful meal that awaits us and that you would fill our, our hearts with hope. For anyone who's here who does not yet know this hope, I pray that they would consider that, that this is actually offered to them, that they would consider what if this is real and true. And I pray that your spirit would be at work. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.